Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a wonderful show. David Wheaton is coming on the program in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on the fantastic and amazing book of Exodus. Our series title is How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. And that's so true. Then Rusty George, Pastor Rusty George, is going to be joining me. We're talking about when God says no. And he's also going to tell us what he learned from his one minute podcasts. I'm excited to hear about that. An hour two, a full hour with uh, Lee Strobel. He's got a new book coming out in September called The Case for Heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for life after death. That is the program for today. And I know you're not going to budge from your radio, which is great. It also leads me after thinking about the case for heaven to this verse in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, that says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how I want to get things started. Now, let's go talk about the fantastic book of Exodus with David Wheaton. He, of course, is the host of The Christian Worldview. He's an author, a speaker, and a former professional tennis player. Most of all, he's my friend. David, welcome. Good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, I'm looking forward to jumping back into Exodus. Last time we got a little bit off on a tangent talking about tennis, but I didn't mind that at all. No, it's always fun to talk to you about anything, Bill. <laughs> All right. I think the last time we discussed, we were in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 7 and 8. Maybe we can just do a little brief review. Yeah, we did. We talked about those chapters last time, and this is where the, the plagues, of uh, the famous plagues are beginning. You know, Moses and Aaron are commanded to take the sons of Israel, the Jewish nation, out of Israel to go and worship, and of course, Pharaoh refuses. Now, you have to remember that Moses is 80 years old at this point. This is the this is the third third of his life. There's 40 years. He grew up in the palace in Egypt, uh, you know, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then he fled for 40 years into the wilderness of Midian. Now God's called him back in the last 40 years of his life to, to lead the people out. And it, it doesn't go well. And, uh, you know, Pharaoh's not budging. The people are upset because the Pharaoh's not budging and he's making life worse for them. And so the plagues, these 10 plagues begin and what's interesting is we're going to go and we're into the the uh, the third plague today, but the first two, uh, it's interesting that you can pull out of these things like little details about they reveal the, the the character of God and the nature of man. How how Pharaoh constantly hardens his heart once there is relief. Um, little things like how God even uses. Moses and Aaron to start the plagues. I mean, why did God have to do that? He didn't have to have, you know, Moses or Aaron raise the staff to start a plague or raise your arms out over the land. But God does that as he uses us today. He, we are, believers are his ambassadors for God. And so God is, uses fallen human beings like believers to do his will because he, he's doing work in us through this whole circumstance of events and exodus in our own lives as well. So there's some interesting things that you can—the plagues may seem similar from a standpoint of, oh, just the plague comes, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then it doesn't—then the next plague starts. Well, there are little things, if you pay attention, you, you're reading 
in these plagues that are revealing who God is. Like the first one, uh, each plague is something that it, it tears down, something that the Egyptians hold dear, something they, they, they worship falsely. They have all these false gods. And the first one, the first plague is the the Nile and the, all the water of Egypt turning into blood. The, the, the Nile River was the country's lifeblood, no pun intended, for agriculture and, and water, and it had religious significance. And so when, when blood took over the Nile River, that was just a, a complete repudiation of, of them worshiping uh, the Nile River. Second plague we talked about last time was there was frogs all over the land. Again, frogs were considered sacred, like gods to the Egyptians. When they hear frogs croaking in the Nile, they will consider that a sign of lushness and life uh, for their nation. So frogs came everywhere in their houses, their dishes, their beds. I mean, it's just gross. And meanwhile, Pharaoh's uh, magicians are able to replicate some of these plagues. These like the first plague. They were able to turn water into blood. They were able to bring frogs on the land. Now, interestingly, they weren't able to reverse the plague, but this is unconvincing to Pharaoh, and this is why he continually hardens his heart. And especially after there's, there's relief from the plague, like we do in our own lives, when there's relief from a trial, we tend to go back to our own way again. And that's the lesson we can learn from the first couple of plagues in Exodus. I appreciate that, David. I, I like review. I also thought that turning the Nile into blood and frogs was about as bad as it gets. But I think, uh, I don't know, it depends on how we process uh, the third and fourth plagues, because these seem pretty nasty, too. Well, I, I think we in Minnesota will process these third and fourth plagues plagues really well. <laughs> the, the, the third one is biting gnats. I mean, <laughs> they, they were probably more like lice, but we, we get the point because we have you know um, bad years for mosquitoes, of, of which this actually isn't a bad year in the Twin Cities. But think of all the dryness. Yeah, good point. Uh, but for Minnesotans, so we, we understand what uh, biting gnats or insects or mosquitoes are like. And it says in Exodus 8, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through the, all the land of Egypt. And again, here, if you just look closely again, you'll learn something. What is going on here? The, the God is creating something. He's creating life from non-life. And this is why the magicians, when they try in this same chapter, Exodus 8, they're not able to do it. They, they can't. They could do some trickery before, maybe with the power of Satan or a magic tricks and illusion or whatever it was, but they're not able to do this. They're not able to take non-life, dust, and turn it into life. And then we go into the fourth plague, so Pharaoh doesn't relent at all from all the, the biting gnats, lice everywhere. So it goes quickly. There's not even a warning of the fourth plague. It goes directly into it. And this is this plague is swarms of flies. And again, another one for those listeners who are listening in Minnesota. We know what it's like. You go to northern Minnesota in the middle of the summer and encounter black flies. You know, you just don't even want to be outside. It's, it's You just want to get away. And so this is what happened, that these swarms of black, or these swarms of flies were everywhere in the land. And this plague, again, another interesting thing we learn is that this time, God separates the land where the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel are living, from the land of the Egyptians. So there's swarms of flies in Egypt, but like there's this invisible boundary to the, the sons of Israel where they're living in Goshen within Egypt. There's no flies there at all. And so why does God do this? Well, he uses it to illustrate just even more. Look, Pharaoh, this is my hand doing this. 
You need to bow the knee. He actually says it in the passage in Exodus 8. He says, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of this land. In other words, this isn't luck. This isn't happenstance. You see floor, uh, swarms of flies where you are, but go look over at the nation of Israel, the sons of Israel, within your own land. There's not one fly there. It just makes it more obvious that God is sovereign. He's in control. He is the one doing this. He is our creator. He created us. He deserves our worship and obedience. And bow the knee, Pharaoh, because it's going to be ramped up even more if you don't. All right, David Wheaton is my guest. David, I want to ask you, we've got the Nile and water turned into blood. We've got frogs now. We've got biting gnats and swarms of flies. At this point, does Pharaoh finally relent? Well, you think anyone would, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would. <laughs> you know, the hardness of not just Pharaoh's heart, but our hearts is is really incredible. And I just happened to be read, reading the book of Revelation this week, and even during the end times, uh, you know, before the return of Christ or around that time, you know, the, the all the judgments are taking place. You probably read those in Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, mm-hmm. the judgments, and so forth. And these horrible things are happening. They're, they're like the plagues. Uh, to the entire earth, and it says repeatedly, and men will not repent. They're cursing God. And it just goes to show you how hard our hearts are. We 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 want to worship what we want. We want what we want, basically. But this is the first time in Exodus 8 that Pharaoh almost relents. I, notice I didn't say it repents. He almost relents. Mm-hmm. He he relents on his terms. It's like he, he, he still won't give in, even though the, the land and everything's being destroyed— he still won't relent. He says, Pharaoh called for Moses after the swarms of flies and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord uh, what is an abomination to the Egyptians if we sacrifice in the land before their eyes. Will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice. Pharaoh says in verse 28, Exodus 8, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord, only you shall not go very far away. Look at the difference here. Moses is saying, we must. In other words, he has an authority above himself that's telling him what he must do. Pharaoh says, I will. Pharaoh is his own authority. And isn't that just typical of our own lives as well, Bill? It's always about, it's going to be, we must, we ought to obey, we should, we shall obey God. Or is it, I will do what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And this is the problem, that Pharaoh was not near repentance, and he was not even going to relent. And uh, interestingly enough, he asked for Moses to take away the, you know, you know, ask the Lord that he may take away these flies. Well, and he says, uh, he will take away the flies. And it says in Scripture specifically, not one fly remained. Just think about that. You've gone from flies and swarms of the memory wear to all of a sudden the appointed time, God removed every last one, even removing them so there wasn't any left. Not one, it says, should have been told Pharaoh something that he should bow the knee and let the people go and worship. Mm-hmm. David, after biting gnats and swarms of flies, I think I need a break. So we'll uh, take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our study in the book of Exodus with David Wheaton. When we return, we're going to talk about the fifth and sixth plagues. Be right back.
David Wheaton is my guest as we continue our wonderful study on the book of Exodus. We called this uh, series how epic Exodus displays the awesome God, and God is so awesome. We've been going through the plagues, and now I think we're going to move on to plague number five and number six. Yeah, we're we're running through these pretty quickly, and it's amazing to read them. I would encourage your listeners to do so in early part of of Exodus. Um, yeah, the fifth plague is you know Pharaoh again, still not relenting, still not letting the people go and worship, not obeying God, refusing, wants to go his own way. Well, the fifth plague comes along, or halfway through here, and this plague is where all the Egyptian livestock die. There, there, again, there's a separation made between the Egyptian livestock and the and the the, the sons of Israel's livestock. And it says in Exodus chapter 9, we flip the page, Exodus 9 now, if you refuse to let them go and worship and continue to hold them, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flock. And the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And he said a definite time. Tomorrow this thing will happen. And so th- this is the first plague bill. Again, here's another interesting element of it. This is the first plague that affects the Egyptians' personal property, something that they own. Other things were the swarms of flies and gnats and frogs and so forth. Now it started to get very personal, things that they relied on uh, for their industry, for their income. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a major part of their economy. This is the food chain. And so you just have to wonder, you know, why didn't Pharaoh at this point, when these warnings are coming, God's telling him in advance what to do. Just let my people go. They work. Why not just do it? It's the same question we can ask ourselves. Why don't we heed God's warning? Uh, you look at this country, and I, I think in, in many, many ways, this country has come to a point of rejecting God, uh, rejecting his word, his clearly stated word. And I think in many ways we are suffering the consequences uh, in this country. Um, you know, there are many pastors who believe that we are under the judgment of God. We are in that Romans 1 judgment of being given over. That, that's a judgment in itself, being given over by God, where he lets us go uh, in the consequences of our own sinful decisions. That's a terrible place to be. And Scripture conti- continually teaches that obedience to God brings blessing. That doesn't mean lack of trial, but it brings spiritual blessing. And disobedience brings consequence. And so after this plague— where the Egyptian livestock die. And again, the separation is made between the, the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of the sons of Israel who are living in the land. It's interesting. It's almost funny. In verse 7 in chapter 9, it says, Pharaoh sent, in other words, sent to go take a look, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. He went to check it out. In other words, he still didn't have faith. He did, still didn't believe that this was somehow from God. Is it really, really? None of their livestock died. All of ours died, but none of theirs died. You would think at this point he would be ready to break, but he was still a long way away from doing so. I am personally so utterly convinced at this point. I don't know what's what's keeping Pharaoh from letting him go. It's true, and the, the, it's the it, it goes from this fifth plague of the livestock, uh, an attack on their personal property to the sixth plague is an attack on their personal health. So these two plagues are very personal in nature. In this sixth plague is that there were boils on man and animals. It says in Exodus chapter 9, take for yourselves, to Moses, he said, handfuls of soot from a kiln. Now here's an interesting element. 
and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the land of Egypt and will become boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Now, now here's where the boils start appearing on everyone in Egypt, and the animals and so forth. But here's the interesting element. The kilns, they were used for brick making. Well, who was making bricks at this particular time? It was the Israelites. The, the, the kilns were the ones that the, the Egyptians had provided for the Israelites to go gather straw and make bricks for the building. They were enslaved with these kilns all the time. And now Pharaoh, just God has an irony to him, uh, is, is, now, is now suffering from the, kiln, the kilns that he had used to force the Israelites in their slave labor. And meanwhile, the, the magicians enter the story again, like, you know, here, here come they, can, they, can they get rid of the boils? Well, it turns out they're so helpless at this state, it says that the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils, mm. for the boils around the magicians. In other words, they come back in the story, they can't even stand before Pharaoh, they can't do anything. They're rendered completely incapacitated. And also, interestingly, in this particular plague, this fifth or this sixth plague, there's the first mention that that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember how we talked about that earlier? There's there's this, this back and forth between Pharaoh hardening his own heart and then God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Well, this is the first time where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and this is God carrying out his will. Yet, as we mentioned earlier in a couple programs ago, it's not apart from Pharaoh's own personal responsibility. This is the tension that's hard to understand, but I think that God was just allowing Pharaoh's heart to become hard for his own purposes and not letting the people go because there were more plagues to come. And we were finally going to get to that last plague where the death of the first one would lead to Passover and all the immense meaning of that plague. Mm-hmm. David, what is the interlude between the sixth and seventh plague? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, like Revelation, there are these interludes sometime between the the unveiling mm-hmm. of these judgments that take place, the seals. There's been an interlude in heaven for for 30 minutes. It's like, what, what, is, what do those mean? Well, there is an interlude in Exodus between the sixth and seventh plague. And, and God makes a, a speech, so to speak, to Pharaoh. He says, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go. He says that almost all the time before this. He just keeps repeating himself. For this time, I will send all my plagues. They're not, they're not Moses's plagues, by the way. They're my plagues, God's plagues, on you and your servants, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. Indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. In other words, there's this kind of this halfway point, a little bit beyond halfway point, where all of a sudden God intervenes and explains why he's doing this. Is number one, that I am the greatest God. There's no one like me. These are, not, these are my plagues. No one else is doing this. It's me. I have the power over my creation. Number two, I'm giving you time to repent, actually. I could have wiped you all out immediately. And this is the message to us at all. You know, God is patient. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He could, he could justifiably destroy us and condemn us and judge us after the first time we consciously sin, but he doesn't. He waits. He gives us time to repent and believe in his, his, his propitiation, his satisfaction for us, his, believe in his son who, 
who created this substitutionary sacrifice so we could be forgiven of our sin and right with God. So God's actually showing his patience throughout this, he says. And number three, he says, I have put you in power, Pharaoh, to show my greater power and greatness through all the earth. So don't think you're some great person. I'm the one who put you in power for this purpose to show my greatness. And then he says, finally, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I mean, again, this is the crazy rebellion of man against the infinite creator God. Mm -hmm. David, talk about the seventh plague and tell us how this plague is a test. Yeah, again, there's an interesting element to each of the plagues. And this this plague is a test. It's after this speech that God gives, it's, it's, will you listen now? Did you hear me? And will you obey? And he says, tomorrow... Uh, you know, bring your livestock in from the field, because if you don't, I'm going to send a hailstorm, and they're going to die if they're in the, the field. Now, some livestock was left from the, the previous uh, plague that didn't kill every single livestock. There was a distinction between those in paddocks and just those in the field. And so those that were left, he said, bring them into your barns or else. And it says, interestingly, in verse 20 of, of chapter 9, the one, the person among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into their houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Well, what do you think happened when the hail came? Well, we know what happens when the hail came. Those who left there who didn't listen, who didn't pass the test of listening to God, their livestock was completely destroyed by these gigantic chunks of ice coming down. It devastated everything, not just the servants and the animals, but the crops and the fields. But again, there's a distinction made. Only in the land of Goshen, where, there, where the sons of Israel wow. were, there was no hail. Just picture for a second how destroyed the land of Egypt is at this point, mm-hmm. with livestock dead, crops, trees, bro, everything totally destroyed. And there's still a couple more plagues to go, and yet there's still not repentance on the part of Pharaoh and his servants and the leadership of that country. Yeah, David, we only have about a minute and a half left. But what does phony repentance sound like? <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to get into this one next I th- time. I think so, yeah. Well, I, I'll just give you the, the preview of it, and then, uh, well, here, here's what it is. He, he, in chapter 9, verse 27, after this hailstorm, Pharaoh sent for Moses and said to them, I have sinned this time. <laughs> in other words, oh, you know what? I, th- I think I've actually sinned this time. Not all the other times, <laughs> yeah. but just this time. And so that's where that's where this phony repentance comes in, that he's he's minimizing his sin. He's basically just wants to get the the hardship they're experiencing removed. Uh, he's not saying I deserve whatever has come my way. I, I, I repent and believe, and I I'm a wretched sinner. I, I I he's not saying that. He's saying just somehow get me out from under this this destruction that's coming to my land. That's what phony repentance is, and we have to watch out for that in our own life. When we repent of our sin, it's not about getting out from the out from under the consequences of the sin we've caused. It's about the repentance comes from wanting to being sorry that we've offended God's goodness and holiness. That's true repentance. David, love the study. We'll look forward to next time. Same here, Bill. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. After a short break, we'll be back with Pastor Rusty George. We're going to talk about when God says no.
like it very much when I get to hang out with Pastor Rusty George for any amount of time. Today is one of those opportunities I get to do that. He's the uh, lead pastor at Real Life Church in Southern California. He's uh, a global speaker. He's a leader. He's a teacher. And he loves the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, the Royals, and he's a Lakers fan. So he's got a lot to be excited about in, in my book. Rusty, nice to have you back on. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. I mean, the Chiefs are so much fun to watch. Well, I feel like God has shed his grace on us <laughs> Chiefs fans because we've been long-suffering for so yes. long. Yes, And uh, we've had to watch just miserable offenses, and now it, you're right. It is so entertaining to watch. So we can talk about the Vikings because today's topic is when God says no. And <laughs> that seems to apply pretty nicely to the Minnesota Vikings. It really does. You guys were so close a couple of years ago. And I know. Then things just kind of fell apart. I know. It's really sad. But I know, you know it's, it it's, a, it's a topic that a lot of people are so frustrated about. They don't know what to do. But when God does say no... You have to process that. You have to figure out what the long game is. And you can spend a lot of time being angry at God or saying, God, uh, thy will be done. Thy will be done. That's right. I think one of the common things that we question when God says no is, what did I do wrong? Ooh. You know, and we, we immediately go to two things that we think we've done wrong. One, we didn't have enough passion when we asked. So we try to ask again or twist God's arm, or use magic words, or whatever, um, or we, we didn't have enough perfection. In other words, I'm not good enough, so God won't bless me the way that I would like Him to. Now, obviously, in Scripture, we read things where people, uh, their, their blessing is contingent upon things that they've done, and the things that, you know, God wants to bless in their lives. But for the most part, uh, I think a lot of God's reasoning for why He says no to us is uh, doesn't have anything to do with those two things. And what gives me hope is I always remember and look at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, here he is praying with such passion, he's sweating drops of blood, and here's somebody who's perfect, and yet God still says no to his request. So it doesn't seem to be so much about passion or perfection, but really, what is God's plan? And Rusty, when you think about you know, God has information about your life that you don't have. So he's to be trusted, right? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to say it. I think, um, you know, when you, when you finally have kids and you begin to look at them and you recognize that I see the long game a lot better than you do. When yeah. My <laughs> daughter's <laughs> frustrated about her, you know, seventh grade algebra quiz or whatever it is. I think, you know, that's really not going to matter in the long scheme of things. Or somebody, you know, as awful as a breakup can be in high school, you just think, yeah, but, I mean, sometimes that's a lot for the best. And really, there's going to be so many other things that will be bigger on the on the spectrum. And God just sees that. He's just got a higher perspective than we do. Rusty, I want to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm thinking that God approved of the work that Jesus did. Jesus was 100% innocent. And he, and he had done nothing whatsoever to forfeit the favor of God, nothing. And God loved right. him and said no. Right. Yeah, here he is. You know, the, the father has, has openly said now on two occasions, this is my beloved son in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. And Jesus is negotiating with God, much like we do. God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, yet 
not uh, not my will, but your will be done. And what's interesting is, um, if you've been to Israel, you can stand on the Garden of in the Garden of Gethsemane and look across the Kidron Valley and see the inside of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus could have literally been watching soldiers light torches and gather swords as they came to arrest him wow. while he's praying this prayer. Wow. I mean, talk about getting a wow. visual no while you're still asking. <laughs> um, I never and, thought of that, Rusty. That is amazing. Uh, and, you know, I think when we, when we look at Bible geography, we tend to think of it as large and big and spread out. But when you're over there, you realize, well, these things are really a lot closer together than you think. And for Jesus to be able to watch this transpire and be led by Judas, um, and then you think, boy, God, you know, is saying no to him, and Jesus has got to face that right now. And he gets it together so quickly and, you know, stands up and says, all right, here we go. Uh, I just, man, I just wish I could, uh, I could respond that quickly to God's will. Rusty, one of the things that troubles me of the Garden of Gethsemane prayer is on the way to that prayer, he asks some of the disciples to stay awake with him, pray with him. <laughs> and they go, eh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. I mean, talk about feeling alone. You feel alone, right. and then you get a no from God. Right. Yeah, I think we often want to um, go through all of the horrific pain that Jesus went through, and certainly movies like Passion of the Christ, you know, they, they really do depict that well. But it's the emotional pain that I think was far greater. I mean, you have the abandonment of your father on the cross. You have a no from God hours before you have a denial, you have a betrayal, and like you said, the, to kick it all off, hey, let's have this wonderful meal. I'll wash your feet. We'll go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where I'm going to ask you to stay awake and pray for me and with me, and you guys all go to sleep. Um, what I love about that, Bill, is when I'm up all night and I feel alone and everybody in my house is asleep, <laughs> And I think nobody in my church knows how I feel right now. Hmm. Jesus says, I do. <laughs> and I remember. And I remember what that was like. Mm-hmm. So, Rusty, let's just talk about accepting God's no. It's got to be mm-hmm. a, a little bit uh, troubling for many. And because we know that we, we love the truth that God does answer prayers. And we're getting a no. So how should we respond to this when he says no? Uh, I think a lot about when I was a kid. And I would beg my dad, um, you know, for something like, let's go get ice cream. Let's, you know, go to the movies, whatever it was. And sometimes he'd say yes. Sometimes he'd say no. But, you know, if he said yes, then I would, I'd be so ecstatic. And I would say, hey, it's great to be with you and everything. But if he said no, then I would leave and go out with my friends. Mm. And it was pretty clear what I wanted. And that was not just time with my dad. I wanted what my dad could give. And now that I'm a father, I think, boy, the most precious thing to me is not just being able to say yes to my kids, but it's the presence of my kids and to be with them. You know, we just dropped a daughter off at college last weekend, and we're still kind of going through the grief process of her not being here. And I think for us with our Heavenly Father, we have to remember that the greatest joy that he has could be our greatest joy as well. And that is that he's still with us. And even in the no, because, you know, we have to trust that he knows best. 
But then we need to settle in on the, okay, but you're going to be with me. This is not a no, slam the door, I'm mad at you, and you need to get your act together before I'll come in and listen to you again. This is a no, and I'm sorry, but that's not the best thing for you. But I'm still with you, and I'm close to you, and I'm going to walk you through the sadness, even if you didn't get the ice cream you wanted. Mm-hmm. Pastor Rusty George is my guest. I love a guy with two first names, just like me. Um, <laughs> are, are you a Russell? I am. Okay, cool. I am. And I, you know what's funny to me, Bill, is everybody in the doctor's office, you know, they file their information, last name first, then first name. <laughs> and yet when I come in, they seem to think they've done it backwards and called me George Russell. I, know. I don't understand. I, I figure it. you got that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that story. So, Rusty, let's talk about, like, Paul. I mean, he had this thorn in the flesh. I'm thinking Paul obviously pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn from him. And God mm-hmm. kept saying no. And I, I look at the, the work that Paul did and the sacrifice and what God called him to do, and yet he was not relieved of this, whatever it was. Yeah. You know, I uh, I read a biography on Paul by N.T. Wright a few years ago. And uh, first of all, it, it'll take you a few years to get through. It's very long. But he brought something out that I'd never thought about before, that, you know, when we're reading through Acts, we see the conversion experience, and a few chapters later, that you know, well, actually a few paragraphs later, Damascus, and then we read a few chapters later, Paul begins his missionary trips. There was a 12-year gap between the conversion experience and Damascus than when Paul starts his missionary journeys, which means Paul went home, and Paul had to sit there and make tents and tell people, I really did see Jesus. <laughs> and even though I'm a, you know, a great Jew, I now believe in Jesus. And you got to believe me. You got to believe me. He's got a mission for my life. 12 years of this. I got to think that that 12 years of God letting him wait prepared him for the times that God would say no to him later on. So that here we fast forward towards, I don't know, the middle or the end of his life. And He's praying for God to remove this, and lots of scholars like to speculate as to what it was. Was it malaria? Was it blindness? Was it um, maybe a relational issue? And God says no. Well, what's interesting to me is Paul only asks three times and senses immediately what God's answer is and knows that God can be so trusted because of that 12-year gap of waiting, and God always comes around. What's the old expression? God's seldom early but never late. Mm-hmm. And so he's trustworthy enough in those moments. I'll even trust him in the notes. I just think that so much of that plays into how Paul managed his missionary experiences because he gets rerouted a lot. He doesn't get to go to Rome as quickly as he wanted to. Um, You know, he has the Macedonian experience. He has times when he's in famine, when the offering doesn't get there. He's stuck in prison. All these things, I think, come back to that 12 years of waiting, much like for many of our biblical characters. Joseph's in prison for 18 years. Moses is in the desert for 40 years. I mean, if, if we don't like our timetable with God, uh, goodness, we got a little bit better off than uh, some of these people we read about. Mm-hmm. Rusty, here's a question that just came in. If God is going to answer our prayers according to his will, then why are we told to pray and ask? That's a great question. I've got to be honest with you. I've wondered that many, many times. Why even bother? In fact, in the book, After Amen, that came out about a year ago uh, that I wrote, that was my question. That's what spurred the book on was I had so many people asking me that very thing. 
And I spend the whole book trying to answer it and where is God and all of that. But I think it comes right back down to the relationship side of things. Um, for instance, just being with God in the conversation, that's what God wants. And in those moments, we get changed in the process. And haven't you noticed that when you talk something out with somebody else, you kind of talk yourself into the answer? You kind of talk yourself into somebody else's perspective. And I find when I pray, certainly when I write down my prayers, by the end of it, I kind of view things a little bit differently than I did mm. before. So I think there really is a, a bit of a cathartic experience in it to where, yeah, God knows, God knows what we need. But you also read through the Bible and you see where God changes his mind. And certainly with Abraham and, and other times with um, some of the disciples where they pray and God decides, okay, we'll go that way. And I think it's more about the relational side of things. Hmm. I'll have to think about that one during the break. Rusty George is my guest, and we're talking about when God says no, and also we're going to talk to him about some of the things he's learned from a one-minute podcast. I can't wait to hear those as well. That's all coming up after a short break. We'll be right back with Pastor Rusty George. back with Pastor Rusty George. He's lead pastor of Real Life Church in Southern California. He is a, it's a multi-site church, campuses in Canyon County, Lancaster, Simi Valley, Valencia. He's uh, He's got a real busy thing going there, one of the fastest growing churches in America. I love that. So, Rusty, I've been, uh, during the break, I've been uh, feverishly writing down questions. Do you want them? <laughs> well, it depends on what they are. <laughs> I'm going to try. All right. So, uh, we're talking about when God says no. Uh, so what about when the requests we make are kind of rooted in selfishness? Well, that's the beauty of God. He understands that, and he still loves us despite uh, our, our selfishness. I, I think that sometimes God gives us some of those things just for us, for our own enjoyment, but sometimes he'll say no just because it's it's not going to benefit us or other people. We have to remember God's got this grand story that he's unveiling of the redemption of the world, and uh, sometimes— um, you know, the notes that he says to us is because it might disrupt or uh, might keep us out of the process of being a part of this incredible story he's telling. I like that. So here's another question. Do you think we pursue God more with a no or less with a no? Mm. Maybe I should ask you personally, when you yeah. are faced with a no, does it take some of the wind out of your sail and you pers- you find yourself pursuing God a little less, maybe for a season or a time? Or yeah. when you get a no from God, you go, all right, I'm more fired up to be close to him more than ever. No, I think there is certainly a little bit of a, uh, uh, I won't say bitterness, but certainly a, a bit of a frustration period for me when I censor the no. I mean, certainly when I think about, you know, being in church work, it feels like everything we try to do is supposed to be for his benefit and for his glory. And like being out here in California, the multiple times that we tried to buy land and build a building because we were meeting in a movie theater, and the city said no, which we had in turn took that to be God's no. And I got pretty upset with with God during that time, during the no's. And there were times when I thought, I don't really want to talk to him. I don't really want, I mean, because I'm supposed to be doing this for you. I moved across the country to spend time 
uh, with people that are far from God and help them find him. And now I want to build a building to help make the church happen. And why are you saying no? Well, fast forward a few years and we finally do get a piece of property. And, and it happens to be the very first piece of property we ever looked at. And it was <laughs> if, if God said, you know what, right idea, wrong time. Mm. And that was a, a big moment for me of realizing that, you know what, God cares about this place more than I do. And enough sometimes to say no for a better yes. Yeah, Rusty, I want to address some of these very difficult, painful issues that I know listeners have got in the back of their head right now. And this is when the stakes are so high, and the prayer is, please heal my child. Please save my marriage. Please help me to get that job. And it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. I know. I, I, I've, I've prayed those prayers. I've sat with people as they've prayed those prayers. And we all want to know why. And the best answer I can give is we may never know why till the other side. Uh, I don't know why that God allowed some of these things to happen. And certainly even in Scripture, we read about horrific things happening to people. And God uses it, but God still allowed that person to go through it. Um, But think about the guy that Jesus heals who was born blind and the disciples want to know who sinned, this guy or his parents. Once again, they're, they're thinking that, you know, the bad things that happen to us are always a result of our, of our rebellion. Well, the guy didn't sin in utero, so it's not his fault. And it's, he said, as I'm in the parents, he says, this was so I could heal this guy and bring glory to God. Well, now think about that. If you're this guy who's been blind for your entire life just so Jesus can heal you, isn't there something that makes you go, well, could somebody else have been that guinea pig or that object lesson? I would rather have not been blind the whole time. But there's a there's a bigger story going on that God is using. And, and now, in hindsight, that the guy's in heaven and looking back on this, thinking, wow, it's pretty incredible that I, I had to be blind for 20-some years, but this story is bringing encouragement to people for now 2,000 years. So we never know what God's going to use and bring out of our pain. Um, we certainly saw this in our community a year and a half ago. We had a school shooting, and um, one of the children who was killed was um, a friend of my daughter and a member of our church. And I sat with those parents and grieved with them for over a year uh, and, and still do. Um, but as awful as that was, because I remember being in the hospital praying for her to live, and she did not. And another child that was a friend of hers was also shot, and she lived. So we have a lot of these questions as to why one, why not the other. I'm not sure where is God in all of this. But seeing the good that has come out of it, obviously doesn't restore their child, but the mom of this, this girl that was lost said, you know what, we got 13, I believe it was 15. We got 15 years with her, and we're grateful for that. And now we're we're grateful for the legacy that continues on. So I'm not saying you have to spin everything and, well, what's the silver lining? But I am saying that we do serve a God that's big enough that everything will be redeemed in the end. And one day we'll see the beauty in the ashes. Mm -hmm. Talking to Rusty George when God says no. Rusty, I want to run this verse by you out of James chapter 1. And is this ever 
something God ever says no to. I don't think he does. In verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So it sounds like if we ask for wisdom, uh, God's not going to say no to that one ever. It does seem like that. We have to remember, wisdom is different than knowledge. <laughs> so true. Uh, I've uh, prayed that prayer before many a test, and somehow knowledge did not come. <laughs> but the wisdom came, and that was, you really should have studied yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, the wisdom was there, wasn't it? Yes, it was learned through hard knocks. Definitely so. I think there are certain prayers God always says yes to. I, I remember several years ago, I had this revelation that here I am supposed to be leading others to Christ, and I don't know anybody who doesn't know Christ. And so I said to a friend of mine, who seemed to have a lot of friendships with people that were far from Christ. I said, hey, how do I get that? How do I do that? Because I work at a church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. My wife's a Christian. Everybody we hang out with are Christians. And he said, I'll tell you what, you spend 30 days praying this prayer. God, give me your heart for lost people. And that's a prayer God always says yes to. And he was right. A few days in, I'm emotional just sitting at a red light looking at people because I'm starting to see people through God's eyes. I think there's some prayers God always says yes to because he wants us to have his heart and to see his ways. And sometimes that's not always what we expected. Yeah, you better be careful if you pray that prayer. Lord, put somebody in my life that I can uh, share you with. I promise it'll happen today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a prayer that God always says yes to. And I'll tell you a prayer you got to be careful about. God, give me patience. You don't want to pray that one because yeah. he's going to give you something. I don't have time for that, Rusty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Rusty, what, we just have a few minutes left. What have you learned from some one-minute downloads on, pod, on podcasts? I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, over the past uh, four years, we have uh, been fortunate enough through our podcast, Leading Simple with Rusty George. It comes out every week. We've done we've got a million downloads. And uh it's been pretty exciting. We just hit that mark. And I would just tell you that I have learned how much wisdom other people have learned through their hard knocks. In fact, usually the first 90 seconds of every episode, I ask them, give me your life in a nutshell. And it always involves some kind of pain. Mm -hmm. It always involves some kind of loss and where God was in all of that. And we just get some great insight. We've, we've got a episode coming up in a couple weeks with a Disney animator. This is a guy that created Beauty and the Beast and Tangled and um, uh, Lion King and some of these incredible characters. And he weaves his story of finding Jesus through these characters. And you've got to listen to find out. But just the amazing journey that God has us all on. And it's, it's not formulaic. It's not the same as all of us and how God is using all of us to create this great story of his. Rusty, if I wanted to hear that, where would I go? I'm curious. I want to do yeah, it myself. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, just go wherever you get your podcasts and download or subscribe to Leading Simple uh, with Rusty George. You can catch up on any of them. I would tell you to go find the one with Mark Batterson. He's one of my favorites, author and pastor. Mm -hmm. Great stuff from him. We did that at the beginning of the year on his new book, Win the Day. Um, some other good ones on discipleship. Uh, had, a, had one on Hallmark movies. We interviewed a, a director and an actor from Hallmark movies that are Christians and go to our church. That was a lot of fun. There's just some fun stuff on there. So hopefully your your leaders will find it uh, enjoyable. And the whole goal is to make complicated things simple. Yeah, I love that. Got uh, Lee Strobel up next. We're going to talk about heaven. It's going to be a great topic. Oh, wow. That'll yeah. be great. He's got a new book coming out. So uh, 
I always love uh, chatting with you, uh, Rusty, and thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, Rusty George has been my guest, or if he goes to his doctors, he's George Russell. Uh, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> George Russell, we'll see you now. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, taking time with me today, and I look forward to another chance we get down the road. I can't wait, Bill. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Yep. Again, Rusty George has been my guest um, we're going to take a little break, but when we come back, the Sunbird series will continue. I'm excited to have Lee Strobel back on. You know his case for Christ. Well, he's got a new book called, called The Case for Heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for life after death. And that's going to be Lee Strobel with Dr. Peter Capstone will be joining me as we do on Wednesdays at 5 Central Time. I can't wait uh, for that. So after a very short break, I promise we'll be back. Say, if you have not uh, taken advantage of our sum- our summer reading bundle giveaway, because we're getting towards the end of the month, I would highly recommend you just jumping on MyFaithRadio.com and saying, I want a piece of that, because uh, we've got some great uh, bundles of books, um, novels and nonfiction from assorted Christian authors that you've heard right here on Faith Radio. We're giving away one bundle each week. Wouldn't that be kind of fun to just go to your doorstep and you got a whole bundle of books? How fun is that? So go to MyFaithRadio.com. We'll take a break. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.